This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Natasha Heller, one of the hosts of the channel. We're here today to talk to Stephen Bokenkamp, Regents Professor of Chinese Religion at Arizona State University. He is the author of A Fourth Century Taoist Family, The Jun Gao, or Declarations of the Perfected, Volume 1, published in 2021 by the University of California Press. Dr. Bokenkamp, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Professor Heller. Can I call you Natasha? From Yes, absolutely. Can I call you Steve? You certainly may. So I wonder if we might begin today uh, by having you tell us a bit about how you became interested in Taoism and in Chinese studies, maybe more generally. Well, that's a wonderful question. And particularly, uh, my answer will be ironic, particularly given the book that we're talking about. I was first introduced to Taoism at the University of California, Berkeley, in 1979. We were on the quarter system, so it must have been January. I signed up for a course with Professor Michelle Strickman, who'd been invited to um, what was then called the Oriental Languages Department of the University of California to teach a course on Taoism. And he'd been invited because Professor Schaefer had noticed that within Tang poetry, there were just a number of references to Taoist things that he didn't understand. He looked at the Encyclopedia Britannica, and so he invited in, in order uh, Professor Anna Seidel and Michelle Strickman, who were the two authors of that Encyclopedia Britannica um, article. Strickman, of course, was one of the pioneers in the study of the Zhen Gao and what he called the Mao Shan Taoism. We now call it Shangqing, Shangqing Taoism. He, um, as a visiting scholar, he couldn't have a, a class, a seminar, but he could teach undergraduates. And of course, no undergraduate signed up to read an unpunctuated Taoist text. So first-year graduate students were allowed to take undergraduate courses. I was one of the two unfortunate people who signed up for that course. I say unfortunate because the auditors of the course included people who'd been studying Taoism for a while, including my colleague Susan Cahill, Donald Harper, and Professor Schaefer himself. And the procedure was that I was to read this very text that I've translated, the Zheng Kao, which I'd never seen before, and I knew nothing about Taoism. And so I'd read for a little bit, and they'd look at me with kind of, oh, kind of <laughs> in a kind of stricken sort of way and say, no, I'm afraid not. And then they would discuss it for a while, and then they'd say, Steve, read a little more. And I'd make another attempt. So I guess it says something about the kind of person that I am, that from that beginning, as I continued to study Taoism, here I am translating the very text that frustrated me as a first-year graduate student. 
How did you end up in graduate school? I, I assume for Chinese studies, correct? And for um, literature. In literature. That's correct. So what brought you to that? Well, that's an, maybe an even longer story. Let me just give you the abbreviated form by saying I was um, I grew up during during the war in Vietnam. I was very interested in why it was that we had so many wars in Asia and yet knew so little about it. So I determined to to learn uh, Asian language. I eventually was drafted and then um, subsequently enlisted in the army. I was in the army for seven and a half years as a Chinese translator. When I came out, I didn't want to do anything with modern China, but I was attracted still to Chinese culture. And so I went to Berkeley from directly from the army. Wow. Um, so translation has been really central, it seems to me, to your career. Your first book, Early Taoist Scriptures, introduced and translated a number of texts. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you think about translation as part of scholarship, and in particular, your own scholarship? Uh, certainly. I think that particular uh, book, Early Taoist Scriptures, was the result of conversations with Anna Zydel um, in, in Japan. I spent a couple of years in Japan at Waseda University and visited her in Kyoto several times. And she was, she was worried that Taoist studies was kind of becoming um, a, an esoteric cabal of scholars who didn't um, reach out too much to other areas of scholarship. And so she was urging me to kind of make my work more available to scholars in other fields of Chinese studies. And so what I tried to do, by that time I'd already, as a result of Strickman's tutelage, I'd already um, published several articles, even before, even before I graduated and finished my PhD, I mean. Um, I had published several articles in Europe and in the United States on Lingbo, on Lingbo Taoism. And I'd become that in the way we were looking at Taoism then as kind of a colonial enterprise, we had each kind of marked off our territory and Lingbo had been given to me. I was Lingbo, Shansheng, Mr. Lingbo. Um, and I, I took Zaidel's point that this was not a proper way to just to discuss to handle this religion. And so early Taoist scriptures was meant to be a foray in which I went through all of the stuff that we had been, various people had been uh, researching and publishing in specialized venues and making it available, if I could, to the general scholar. So it, I covered in that book um, celestial masterworks, works of Shangqing and works of Lingbao Taoism. And so I think from that experience, I, I came away with the idea that, or with the understanding, I should say, that scholars, that translation is a particularly intense form of scholarship in which you must pay attention to each part of the text. You can't, you know, just cherry pick um, items to make your point, you need to move through the text in a complete sort of way. And what you discover then is often different 
than you had imagined you would find. So in short, translation is a way both to make materials more accessible to a wider readership, but also a way of sort of intensification of one's engagement with the text. I, I believe that's so. I mean, one of the practices that I've had, uh, which is only kind of, again, sort of ironically been um, suspended while COVID has been uh, troubling us, was, was the idea of reading groups. And the reason it's been suspended, I suppose I could do it online, but I would invite every week students over to my house and we would sit around and read Taoist or Buddhist texts. And that was a way of training the next generation in that kind of intense concentration on a single document, a single text, mm -hmm. and what it could tell us. From And of course, then each of the students would be bringing their different specialties to the table. And it was, you know, it was a great way of, of training students, as well as expanding my own knowledge. So yeah, I believe... I believe very deeply that that translation is an imperfect art, of course, and it is um, it is traitorous, as the saying goes. Um, you never can get the text quite right, but in struggling to do so, I think it's it's an incredible learning process. Has your approach, I guess, aside from you, you know, the ability to access texts online and so forth. Has your approach to translation changed over the, the years that you've been doing it? I think it changes constantly. I think it changes constantly. First, the first kind of vector of change is from talking to scholars in other fields and their, their, the questions they bring to me about why I translate certain words certain ways. There's a critique that goes on of Taoist studies. Um, these are these are difficult texts to translate. They're texts that are meant to mystify readers, that were originally meant to mystify and attract through their kind of exoticism um, an audience. But the problem is that when we translate them that way in English, there, there's a reaction that maybe we're exoticizing or orientalizing what, what's in front of us. And so I've had a lot of critiques from, from my colleagues about that issue and thinking about that and talking to them about that and how one kind of mediates between the exoticism that's there in the original context and the exoticism that I have to try to communicate in some way to the contemporary reader, but not making it like an extra level of mystification or something, or uh, without sort of belying what the text is about, finally. This is, a, is an interesting juggling act. So that's one vector. Um, another way, of course, that it's changed is that I, as I said, translation is a process of learning, and I've really come to understand, I think, Taoist texts a lot more than I did 30 years ago. So so I wonder if we should turn to the, the book, this, the newly published A Fourth Century Taoist Family. Mm -hmm. And this book is an introduction and partial translation of Zhang Gao, The Declarations of the Perfected. 
why did you choose this text to translate? Well, as I said, I began with it. And so there's some kind of, um, as I work through translation um, of the entire text, I think there's some kind of, of sense of completion of coming full circle again in my scholarly career. That's one aspect. That's the personal aspect of it. But in terms of the scholarly world as a whole, the Declarations of the Perfected has stood as kind of, a, of an important landmark in our study of early medieval Taoism because it was worked on around 500 by Tao Hongjing, who's a wonderful scholar in his own right. And his annotations provide us with a lot of information about what was going on in the Taoism of that time and allow us to start dating some of the masses of scriptures that we have. You have the same problem. I'm sure, Natasha, you know, you know this problem because you have the same problem in Buddhist studies. Um, you have a masses of scriptures fascinating. You know they were important. People reference them, but you're not always sure how many people knew about them, how, how were they used in ritual or in, um, in practice, um, what levels of society um, were aware of these texts. Is it only the literati who happened to mention a few lines in poems, say, from Vimalakirti Nirdesha? Or is, was there a larger understanding of what, and what was that understanding of what's being conveyed in the scriptures? Because, of course, when we read them, we read them one way. They may have been read differently uh, centuries ago. So, yes, um, that's one reason because it stood just as this kind of important landmark. The other reason, it just seemed to me that my teachers all spent a lot of time and did really important work on this text, and nobody had ever tried to work through it in its entirety. Um, Strickman was close. If you read his, um, his collected works, he's really is very careful reader of this scripture, of this jungle. But it struck me that one approach to it hadn't been tried yet, and that was through uh, by by just relying upon our guide, Tao Hongjing, who brought the fragments of revealed material together, and the letters between the shoes and and Yangshi, um, and gave us annotations as to how to read them. So that's why I hit upon the notion of following very closely his annotations. I'm even trying to present the text in the order he indicates we should look at it. What is the earliest material that Yangshi um, trans was transmitting to the shoes? Um, the earliest material we have from the from the brush of Yangshi. What are the later, later scripture? I'm not just starting at the beginning of this text, and translating my way through it, and that's particularly the case, because in nineteen in chapters nineteen and twenty of what is now a twenty chapter work, Tao Hongjing has given us his account of what this text, what these fragments are about how he collected them, 
what sort of material they were on, the sort of paper they were written on, this sort of thing is all kind of in, in those chapters. So I've placed those in the beginning of the book. Yes. Um, one of the things I found most fascinating is the way that you made Tao Hongjing's editorial process part of the story. I wonder if you might expand a bit on the task that Tao had before him. Well, as you can as you can tell from his annotations, somebody had done had t- gone through some of the fragments before, and that's Gu Huan. And Gu had uh, pr- produced a work which he called "Traces of the Perfecto," which no longer survive survives. Even the title bothered Tao Hongjing. Um, he said, "These the perfected these deities that appeared to Yangshi never left any traces at all." Um, in fact, they didn't write anything. They they dictated to Yang, and Yang Shi would would write down their words. So that was one resource he had at his hand. But he was also uh, the son of a calligrapher, and from a family that paid a t- really close attention to calligraphy. And he um, was able to distinguish between the different hands in which these fragments had been written. So it's very valuable to notice, first of all, I've taken sometimes his annotations and moved them in front of the fragment that he's annotating because it's so important to know whose hand it was written in, what the fragment from his perspective meant. Um, And he tried to put them into some kind of chronological order. He failed. he divided the book into seven chapters. The seventh chapter was his postfus, which is chapters 19 and 20 now, as I've said. This was also, he said, on the model of the Lotus Sutra and the Zhuangzi. So he really thought that this was important work in, in putting these fragments together. And in his postfus, he also derives from them what he can about the History of the of the Shangqing Scriptures. Professor Chukman has already translated that in a Tongbao article, and I think we've probably milked this posphus as much as we can for information on those particular uh, Shangqing Scriptures. But the rest of it hadn't been translated, so there was some really interesting material there about what the purpose of Certain groups of poems were, for instance, things that had been ignored by people who were translating it before. But Tao Hongjing tells us precisely what he thinks, for instance, the purpose of certain poems, like those um, Salon poems of Gathering of the Perfected that I've translated. He tells us what he thinks they were meant to be about. And that kind of changes the way we, we look at them today. So, so for all, if I could just finish up, for, for all of those reasons, I think while what's interesting to me also in my other book, uh, Ancestors and Anxiety, I looked a bit at Tao Hongjing's um, annotations. And the points that fascinate me are when his duty as a scholar is contradicted by his, we could call it his faith or his belief in the in the genren and and. Sometimes they tell about the fate of, for instance, of people in the other world. And Tang Jing will say, 
um, my gosh, this person is is being demoted in the other world for some crimes. But, you know, when I look at other historical records, he seems to be an exemplary person. And so those kind of, Tao Hong Jing was a true scholar, and I think he's worth following through through this text, certainly much closer in time to it than the events of that are recounted therein than we are. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. So, you know, he emerges as the major voice here, I think. But I wonder for people who might not be as familiar with the character, I guess, the cast of characters hmm. in in this work, um, could you introduce us to Yangshi and the Shu family? Right, in a sort of general sort of way. Um, I think what I need to do is do a dramatis personae, like I did for um, Ancestors and Anxiety for the next volume, to make certain that because this it's very complex in certain ways, and also because the perfected the gods who come down. To, to Yangshi seem to refer to the Shu family in, using their um, family names sometimes. Um, so individual characters will be known by different names. The main characters, however, are Yangshi, who lived, we have a birthday for him, it's 330. He pr is predicted to have died in 386 by the perfected, but we don't know precisely when he ascended. Yangshi was what I call a Taoist medium, and I try to explain in the preface what I mean by that, who um, was a libationer in Celestial Master Taoism, but received from an ascended Celestial Master, Wei Huatsun, um, who appeared to him in vision, new methods that, for instance, got rid of the um, sexual rights of Celestial Master Taoism and replaced them with new, more refined rights that are internalized. So Yangshi was employed during the course of these revelations by Xu Mi, who um, was a minor official in the Jin Dynasty court, a southern family, and they lived um, in Zhurongxian, which is quite near to Mount Mao, Maoshan, and that's where a number of the events take place. The main, those are the main um, characters for this part, for the events of this part of the book, although um, Shumi's sons will come into play eventually, particularly as I did in the second volume into more um, intimate details um, of the family and some of the conflicts that they had regarding the revelations that that Yang Shi was passing on. Xu Mi's eldest son, we know nothing about. His second son, Xu Lian, was what I call the bad son. He <laughs> tended not to want to um, follow Yang Shi's um, follow Yang Yang Shi's directions. Xu Mi, on the other hand, um, I'm sorry, Xu uh, Hui, 
sorry, Shu Hui, the youngest son, the third son, was the good son. And he, Shu Hui was practicing and probably died of elixir poisoning. But he was certainly the perfected have a particular love for him and pass on methods that he can that he can um, pursue to um, reach new heights of self-perfection. But all of that is yet to come. Right. So this is the the fourth century Taoist family that is yes in the title. That's right. And Tao Hongjing picks up these texts, what, about 50, 50, 60 years after they were written? A little more than that, about 100 years afterwards. And he starts writing about them around even 130 years after. So we're, yeah, he's he has not met any of the principals. He has talked to some of the old people in the, in the, um, in the Maoshan area, in the Zhurong area, he's done quite a lot of research. He actually lived on Maoshan himself. So he was carefully looking at the sites, the geographical area as well. And what's what's going to become important, I need to add really quickly, What's going to, because I call this a Taoist family for a reason. I've, um, in chapter, what was it? I think it was chapter four of Ancestors and Anxiety. I've published a bit. I started trying out this method of following Tao Hong Jing. And I tell the story of Tao Kado, who is Shumi's wife. And it seems that Yang Shi is invited to the uh, Yang Shi is invited to the Shu family because a number of children have fallen ill in this large extended family. Shumi himself may have fallen ill, and so the Taoist is brought in to see what might be the problem. Interestingly, um, it turns out to be Tao Kado, who is Tao Kado is is um, Shumi's wife, who has recently passed away. According to Yang Shi's celestial informants, she was meant to ascend to the highest heavens. She is now in Maoshan in an underground training center. Well, she was, she was scheduled to go to an underground trading center, but instead she's being held in her tomb by a group of people who are suing from the other world, suing the Shu family, because Shumi's uncle has killed someone. So you can see this has becomes quite a complex family story. Talkado then says, well, I mean, she, we don't have an actual quotation, but it's pretty clear what she's saying to the people who are holding her for this uh, crime. Listen, I'm not really a Shu. I'm married into this family, but I can get you a few. And so she's making her own grandchildren ill. And in the course of investigating this and trying to find out how to stop what's called the sepulchral plaint or the lawsuit from the underworld, um, Yang Shi has dealings with most of the members of the family. The good um, son Xu Hui is married to Huang Jing Yi, who's a, it turns out, has um, unfortunate connections in the underworld. There, somebody's about to sue her parents as well, or something is going on. So Xu Mi actually, or Xu Hui actually divorces her and ends up single while 
Shulian is um, married to a woman by the name of Hua Zorong, and it's their child who's sick. But Hua Zorong is related to another Taoist who was who was working with the Shu family before, and she wants to continue using him and not using Yang Shi, and so she she has her own connections and kind of resists the um, the um, ritual actions that Yang Shi suggests she takes. So it's this kind of family, the revealing of family dynamics, I think that's really interesting about this text. And nobody's focused on this before, but as I, as I said in that particular book, the... Um, the evidence for this is footnoted by Tao, but of course he doesn't give you page numbers. <laughs> he gives you, I, I put some of this in chapter seven or six, I'm sorry. I put some of this in chapter five. And so you can kind of bring together letters between the principles, um, ritual techniques, as well as accounts of how to build a coffin for Tao that sort of thing. All of this is in different parts of the text, and you can bring it all together then. And I reconstruct, at least hypothetically, a very interesting story about a fourth century family and how they dealt with their resident Taoist. Right. So that's one of your interventions, which is to take Tao Hongjing's you know, where he's flagged pieces of a story in different parts of the text and bring them together. That's great. So that we have a kind of a fluid narrative of these different episodes in their life, in the life of the family. As, insofar as I can do that, and insofar as, as Tao Hongjing can do that, yes, that's my attempt, is to follow his lead in, in reconstructing this text. Yeah, and I'm struck as you're talking that they're essentially... Th- three different, I guess, social settings that are interacting, the the social setting of the living, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the dead have their own kinds of activities. And then, of course, there are the, the celestial beings that are also kind of interwoven in this. Um, Absolutely. And it, I think that this tells us a lot about what Taoism did and how it kind of developed as it was influenced by Buddhism. Um, the view, one of the fascinating things about this text for me is that I did, as I said before, start working on the Lingbao scriptures, and they accept the Buddhist notion of purgatories, DU, where people go for um, crimes that they personally have committed during their life. But as you you see what I've been discussing, Taokado, she is being held that that Shumi's wife, she is being held not for anything she did, but for a family connection. So this is an old Chinese notion of guilt and punishment that is more corporate, has to do more with the family and family connections, which I think is what the scene that Buddhism came uh, to confront in early medieval China. This is ancestral practice, a result of ancestral practice, this tight connection between the world of the dead and the world of the living. So that one of the things Yang Shi does is like Dante Alighieri, he talks about the, the important dead, 
people who held positions in life and are now in Feng Du. Tong Jing takes all of this quite seriously and goes through Feng Du, um, the accounts of demotions and promotions in the other world, which is, by the way, not a world of suffering, torment, or uh, retribution in itself, although retribution can take place there. It's a dark world where the dead go, kind of like the original Yellow Springs or Mount Tai. So, but Tao Hong Jing takes this all quite seriously and provides information on these families from histories that no longer survive, tries to figure out why people are spring the way they are. We know that Yang Shi was probably trying to gather followers by reporting on the fates of the where are they now of the ancestors. So that's one major, kind of major thing to come, I guess. Right. So we really then see from this text a different sense of sort of, I think you make this point, of the social life of families, right? Um, that focuses on these other dimensions, that the the way in which that this is still bound with the deceased, mm-hmm. um, that their fates are still bound with the deceased. And I, so you, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one of the fascinating things to do, and I've had some um, several graduate seminars on it, is to compare it with the other major work from that period, which is also about the dead, although in a different sort of way, right? And that that's with, you know, the Shishu Shinyu talks about mm-hmm. ancestors of people who are living when that book was written, right? So we, it might help us see that text as well in a different sort of way. Right. So you've mentioned the interaction with Buddhism, and mm-hmm. I want to turn perhaps, to explore that a little bit further. So the fourth chapter um, is it's titled, what, the eight, eight pages of, a, of lined text, right? And the right. kind of the, the core of this is a Taoist version of a well-known Buddhist scripture, the scripture in 42 sections. Can you talk about what the Taoists do with it? I had, this is actually where my work blew up on me. Uh, It just, it was the most amazing thing that's ever happened in my scholarly career. And it all centered around a single footnote. And that footnote, I go into great detail about that footnote, where it appears in my translation, which is on page 165. Um, What happened is that I hadn't expected to include this portion in my first volume of translations. I'd actually planned on doing the Taokado portion because uh, Tao Hongjing says that's early as well, as well as an account of Maoshan, the underworld, the cavern heavens below Maoshan. But those things are now moved to the second volume, and they're moved there because of this one footnote, which said... As I've translated it, this text from the 11 Songs on Dependence through the admonitions down to this point is entirely written on eight pieces of lined paper in two alternate hands. This seems like nothing, except that I, I mentioned before that Tao Hong Jing had originally divided the Zhenggao into seven 
chapters where it had been redone um, into 20, everyone has always assumed that the content had remained the same. Well, that footnote is in some place in the middle of what is now chapter 6, and the 11 songs on dependence are in chapter 3, in the middle of chapter 3. So once you do the math, you'll find out that it's impossible for that much text to be on eight pages of lined paper, the way, particularly the way scriptures were written about this time. And so I had to consult experts from Dunhong, to whom I'm, you know, very, very grateful to talking this over. In fact, I even cite one of them, Hao Chunwen of Capital Normal University of Beijing. And he did some research for me as well and gave me some information on what we know about the kind of paper that was used, particularly lined paper, which seemed like it would be used for in presentation to the court. Now, we know that the jungao was, pieces of the jungao were presented and the Shangqing scriptures were presented at the court at various times. So, um, it's something like um, Hu sure had already, it was the only person who'd actually noticed this footnote before, and the, that's the famous sinologist Hu Shi, writing on the Jungao in the 30s. Probably his own, I know it was, he mentions that it's his first look at the Taoist canon, and it may have been his last. He wrote an article called um, Tao Hong Jing de Jungao, and he makes the argument that Tao Hong Jing just invented the whole thing. And this, this problem with the text is one of his pieces of evidence. And in the course of looking at it, he's, he notices that it's impossible for this many. But, but he says, well, you know, the ancients sometimes wrote 20 or 30,000 characters per page or something like that. And that's just impossible. According to modern scholarship, of course, the Dunhuang materials weren't entirely looked at at that time. So that's why he thinks that. But... Once you look at it, then I tried to reconstruct. And what you'll notice that when I mentioned the from the songs on dependence, those are the song. Those are the songs that Professor Kroll has translated in an article, um, and they're based on the Zhuangzi, the Zhuangzi critic, the Zhuangzian criticism of of Liazi who is able to fly and fly thousands of miles in a single day. But Zhongzi says he still has something on which he depends. He depends on the wind. As Tao Hong Jing explains that passage, the whole thing was meant to discuss among the perfected whether or not they could, once Shumi was introduced to a divine bride who would inculcate in him the principles of Shangqing Taoism, would he be doing this on his own or would he be like Lieza, depending on something? And tied to that on these eight pages were apparently both a rewriting of the sutra in 42 sections, which may not have had 42 sections, as well as another bit about um, a Fangzhu, which are these islands floating in, floating in the Eastern Sea with Penglai and Fusang and all of those 
places where Chinese had traditionally believed that immortals or transcendents resided. But now it's pretty clear from the way it's described, this is a new kind of Buddhism. It's a, an Eastern Buddhism, if you will. I know, isn't there a journal, Natasha, called the Eastern Buddhist? There is. I should probably publish this material in that <laughs> journal. <laughs> It'd be quite appropriate. But what it seems, to, what it, Yangshi seems to have done at this early date in the introduction of Buddhism to China is to have developed his own version, a more primordial version of Buddhism practiced by a certain number of transcendents. Now, the significance of the eight pages and the difference in where these things are placed in the text now is that it proves that this text has not come down to us unsullied. It's clearly been rearranged. And pieces may even have been ripped out that we have no access to now. Um, For instance... One of the items that actually is going to be kind of the centerpiece of my course on Taoism. Um, one of the items from the hand of, of Tao Hong King is a, a work called the Dangja Ninjia, um, Secret Instructions on the Ascent to Perfection. Today, only three chapters of an original 24 chapters survives, but we've found now in Dunhuang, a piece which I think I've shown pretty inconclusively is a part original part of that work. And it talks about how to take the single soul introduced with Buddhism. I know I know that you know Buddhist Buddhists actually say that there is no true self. You've written engagingly yourself on the illusion, <laughs> Natasha, but most people Early in the Six Dynasties period, um, translators like um, oh, um, Jiuqian, for instance, write about the soul as if it's a soul that transmigrates. And so the Taoists of Tao Hung Jing annotated this one scripture where Yangshi had said, fine, there's one soul, well, we'll make that part of the Taoist body and integrate it with the other souls. So there is an actual meditation where you actualize this soul that comes leaking, according to Tao Hong Jing, comes leaking out of somebody's, some stranger's grave at your conception. That's accepting something that Buddhists, Buddhists said about the creation of the self, but incorporates it in the body through meditation so that when you transmigrate, you can keep all your body and your spirits intact, ideally. This meditation, unfortunately, has been rewritten in the Wuxiang Miao of around 570. And so that we can see that meditation lasted, this this strategy, if you'll call it that, want to call it that, of the Taoists of incorporating the Atman the Buddhist self into the Taoist body lasted for maybe 200, 200 years or so, and then disappeared. Um, and that's quite demonstrable. So when I found this bit in the, in the Zhang Gao, I thought, my, this is, this is really kind of amazing. 
and it um, really turned the project upside down for me. Right. Yeah, I mean, I thought this, I, I, not surprisingly, like I was just completely fascinated by this chapter. And I think that it, it will probably turn lots of people's um, ideas about the, this relationship between Buddhism and Taoism and how that interaction is happening will we'll change that. Um, so I think uh, you, if I could say one more thing about it, I mean, and this brings our discussion kind of full circle, that realization, that discovery came about through paying attention to a single footnote of Tao Hong Jing. So this kind of um, is my best example of the value of doing complete translations. Right. That those, yeah, that those little signals can be really transformative. So I think we've ta- we've taken up a fair amount of your time. I'm wondering if you can. You've already kind of hinted at this, but you've talked about how um, there are more volumes coming. Um, can you give us a sense of the scope of this project? How, how many volumes? <laughs> how many volumes are there? Um, As you'll notice, what's this next? Fairly slender. I wanted to get that information about this particular this particular passage and the news that the that the Jungao itself has is been truncated and been rewritten, boulderized, if you will. I wanted to get that out. How many more? I suspect, um, I suspect four, four volumes in total uh, might be about right. They may thicken up just a little bit. I mean, there's some material. I don't want to end up with a final volume of bits and pieces at the end that are kind of meaningless and hard to but that, that, that may well happen because that's what happened to Tao Hong Jing. I mean, there are a number of passages that he couldn't place. Right. Some he suspected had been faked. Um, so those, those things will... I'm not certain that I'll ever make a discovery again in my life like this one particular footnote, but uh, I'll be doing the best job I can to follow um, the best kind of guide that we have back through this text with, first of all, and and I should have said this earlier, I think, with an incredible debt of gratitude to all the people, my teachers and others, who have pioneered the work on this text and on Taoism. So, Building on, you know, or moving outward, you make in the introduction a case, and I'm wondering if this we could use this as a way to sum up, that this is essential reading for all scholars of medieval China, right? And I think that that's true. But I think you also suggest that we could should consider the Zheng Gao as um, almost world literature. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you see the work's place. You mentioned Dante a little bit earlier in this conversation mm-hmm. in the context of world literature or world religions. I think if we if we look at the history of world literature, there are a number of there are a number of religious texts who have, have occupied their place. Texts that we see now, sometimes from the religious perspective, but sometimes read in other ways. And I think that the Jungal is worthy of those multiple readings and those multiple considerations. I 
I can't prove it myself, but where my professor started being interested in Shangqing scriptures and in the Zhanggao in particular, that is Professor Schaefer, was from the medium of poetry where he noticed that there were a number of Taoist terms showing up in Tang poetry. But I think the debt is even larger than that. Considered one way, Yang Shi's work is a work of the imagination. More that it, I mean, we don't believe that the gods actually dictated this to him. In some ways, this was coming from Yang Shi himself. And it excited the interest of generations of readers in China. It had its de a definite influence on the way Buddhism was presented in China. There are a lot of aspects to this work that remain to be discovered and fleshed out for people. And I can only sound like I'm giving it too much importance when I say that. On the world stage, I think we're we at a moment where, I mean, this has been my message in China as I've lectured on this text, Beijing University, Shoudu Shivandashia, just a number of places, um, is to kind of say, look, this is parallel to the divine comedy in certain sorts of ways. And the Italians are quite proud of this piece of national literature. Chinese, on the other hand, at this moment in their history, don't have any kind of knowledge of this particular text, and I think it deserves to be considered for place in the development of Chinese literature. I think that that is an excellent place to end our conversation, and I'd like to thank you so much for taking time today to speak with us uh, about your new book. And I really enjoyed having this conversation. I enjoyed it as well, Natasha. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks again. 